Okay. <laughs> Take 27. <laughs> um, we are very excited. This week, we have a friend of the pod with us, back with us again. The, the Sophie <laughs> Jordan is with us, everyone. Um, Sophie, we love you. I'm back. Welcome, welcome. So happy to be here again. So we were talking, this is your second visit to the podcast. Is that true? I feel like that's I think we've, we, but it feels like you've been with us more. (laughs) Certainly Jen has talked about you a whole lot. Fine. Be that way. (laughs) I'm not even sad. You know what? There is like no more apologizing at all in this world for the things that bring you joy. No, that's how I feel. I mean, I'm never going to complain. Sophie Jordan brings me joy in her face and in her books. So we can talk about her anytime. But we're actually, Jen and I have been talking a lot about how we, we've now sort of cultivated, we've curated a very, very, you know, interesting list of people who we really, really love, who we like to have on multiple times. Um, and I'm really very surprised that you are uh, that you are only a two timer. It feels like you should have been here more than that. Um, but now you're in a race because Jen and I are like trying to figure out like it should be Saturday. Saturday Night Live does this whole thing where there's like a five timers club and a 10 timers club and a 15 timers club. And like, um, you know, everybody's like Steve Martin and whoever else are in a battle for like who has Alec Baldwin, like, you know, so who is so what we want to do is like we have an idea for the five timers gift. But like if you come multiple times, you get a present eventually. It's going to be amazing. Right now, Adriana and Kate are like neck and neck. I need to catch up. This is, this is number two. I want a Faded Mates Lifetime Achievement Award. That's my goal. Goals. Sure. Sure. I think it could be um, maybe like a pink ladies jacket. <laughs> oh, that's right? a dream. I would love that. Pink ladies. <laughs> it just looks so soft. And, you know, I'm already imagining how it's going it, to I will wear it to bed. <laughs> I feel like like the real winning thing, though, would be like you get to we all go somewhere together and it's safe to do that. And we sit around and we read books. <gasps> Faded mates like multi timer retreat. Yeah, oh. there you go. <laughs> we all just get together, read books and talk shit. That's what we do. We just read <laughs> and talk and eat and drink. That would be a fantasy when all this is over. Yes. This award is the biggest farce I ever saw. What about the Emmys? I stand corrected. That would be pretty great. I'm for it. You guys, I just want to go to a restaurant. That's all. Like, I feel like that would be such a joy. (laughs) I'm not sure if this happens to everyone else, but every morning I wake up and I think like, okay, what's my day going to be like? Like, it still hasn't really... Yeah. Kicked in. Right. And then I find myself doing things like yesterday I washed windows. Oh, my God. We had. We and I, yesterday. I haven't yeah. gotten that desperate. <laughs> I, it was quite a thing. And I was just like, what am I doing? And I thought, well, it's novel. <laughs> yeah. yeah. When, when was the last time I've done this? It Long feels time. like I cleaned toilets yesterday. Like. When wow. was the last time I voluntarily did that? I mean, not that my toilets are gross, but usually, you know, whatever. I can coax someone else to do it for me. But um, <laughs> but it's not, it breaks up the day. <laughs> I know a lot of people like to be homebodies. And I, you know, I like my house fine. But my God, I want to go to my coffee shop more than I want anything in the mm-hmm. whole world. Yeah, this is definitely a test to my introvert spirit. <laughs> Because even introvert me is is like, wait a minute, this is getting a little much. <laughs> I know. And our children are just here all the time. I feel like <laughs> I've said this on other podcasts, but like my kid is still here all the time. <laughs> everybody needs a break from everybody. <laughs> Maybe. Well, I'll tell you the mistake, the mistake I made, which is I needed like supplies for my cats and so kelly told me about chewy.com where she was like and basically she was like they deliver cat litter and i was like sold and so i was like well i'll order like cat food and that you can put it on like auto buy so here's the thing i like ordered the dry cat food my one cat eats and i was like oh i'll just get like a little bit of a bigger bag and i was pretty sure that i i guys i i bought like 
a 16 pound bag of cat food, which is huge. I guess I buy four pound bags of cat food normally. And this thing came and my husband was like, what the fuck did you do? And I was like, apparently weights and measurements mean nothing to me. That's And so I actually think like there's no way that my cats can even eat it before it goes stale. And so I, I might try and see if I can donate it somewhere this week. Like I just fucked it up entirely and ordered the wrong thing. Like what? 16 pounds of cat food is a lot, by the way, everybody. It's huge. <laughs> Share the wealth. I think my funniest tweet, like, and I won't get the wording right, was just someone. Oh, sorry. There goes oh, my dog. Oh. Um, yeah. See, the dog's like, I'll eat the cat food. I volunteer. I know. The dog's like, don't share that. Put it in my mouth. <laughs> the dog's also like, you haven't said welcome to Faded Mates yet. That's what else the Oh, my God. Oh. Welcome, everybody, to Faded Mates. <laughs> Blame it on the quarantine brain. It's true. We're all just doing our best. So, wait, who's banging around? That is my son walking up the stairs. Go away. I love you. You weren't talking about anything untoward. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I think. Wait, did you uh, send yeah. the kids on a walk, Sophie? Because last time, you want to tell our listeners about the last time you were here? That's true. So the last time. She's well, listening. She's going to whisper. <laughs> I am. So the first time I did my Faded Mates, only my teen daughter was in the house. But after the call ended, she asked me, Mom, were you talking about a box? Plug it in, plug it in. And you were like, yep. Well, we were, because you came on for the master. And I mean, if you're going to come on for a show, for a book. That's going to come up. For yeah. Sure. I mean, shout out to our Chastity Belt uh, search people who find us pretty regularly. Um, I, that is my favorite thing about the Faded Mates website is you can look at like, as with all websites, you can look at the search terms that drive people to the website and Chastity Belt porn is a thing <laughs> that drives people to faded mace because of the master. Um, and so, you know, welcome everyone. We hope you're still with right. us. Whatever brings them. Welcome. Sophie has returned for you. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, so this time my 12 year olds in the house. <laughs> oh boy. Well, not just my 17 year old. All right. Well, <laughs> but we're not going to be talking about butt plugs today. I mean, I don't think. I don't think it's going to come up. There might be, a, we are here for new things. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, Sophie will just whisper. <laughs> and it'll be like, fun. you'll just whisper, butt plugs. Full ASMR for this. <laughs> and then we'll come back to it. Um, so, okay. But we are here. So it's basically a freewheeling episode. We kind of said, you know, because we love you. And, and you have a new book out. Uh, which is very exciting for Jen and me. And Jen and I have been, we've read this. I mean, I read it ages and ages ago and told, and basically lorded it over Jen for a I, while. I real mad. I was like, wait, what? It's not okay for you to do. <laughs> Ma'am, how dare you? Because it's so, so hot. It's so hot. And I want to tell everybody, so, so Sophie and I are very good friends, as you all know. Anybody who's a longtime listener knows this. Um, and so often we know about each other's books, you know, years in advance. Like we, we know what, I know what book she's working on three books from now. Um, this book, which is an aphrodisiac book, we plotted together in Kiowa Island, South Carolina, I mean, years ago, I remember being on a walk. I mean, all I had was the fact that I wanted to write aphrodisiac. There was no story to go with it. Just yeah. I had to write an aphrodisiac book because it's a thing I love. About, I don't know, eight or nine months ago, Sophie called me and said, um, I'm concerned that the book is too hot. <laughs> And I was like, true story, true, true. And I was like, well, I mean, I understand that, but you should send that right to me. <laughs> and I will, I will let you know <laughs> immediately. I will let you know. And here's the thing. It is the right hot, the right amount of hot. And Jen has I'm now right. read it and she can speak to it too. I loved it. Well, I think, um, well, one of the reasons we're also here today, because I want to hear Sophie talk about like this book is 
We've had a couple people of our long-term listeners be like, you're throwing around this take the finger phrase just all the time. But like, what does it really mean? And it's actually, we've sort of stolen it. I have sort of horned in on this. You, This is something the two of you, I think, um, sort of came up with. And we talked about it on a podcast like forever ago. But really one of the other reasons that we wanted you on to talk about your book. And this is like, you know, what does it mean to like come up with a premise and like sort of follow through, even though you know that it could be potentially um, problematic? Yeah. Like risk, risky, problematic or risky or a little scary or people won't like it or or, you know, the potential for it being judged more or whatever it right. is. Right. Well, you know, it's, it's on the Simone scale, right? Yes. And so this seemed like a really good opportunity to like sort of return to like sort of taking the finger as an idea um, and what how that plays out for authors and for readers. But also like then this is a book that sounds like rang that bell for you as an author, right? Where you're like, can I do this thing that I want to do? So we I just also want to say um, one of the longtime listeners who <laughs> encouraged us to revisit the definition of take the finger is Eric. <laughs> was like, I have literally listened to this podcast more than anybody in the whole world, including you two idiots. <laughs> he was like, and I do not understand what this means. So he still needs clarification. Okay. Well, because we never we only did it the one time. And then oh, we've just used yeah. the phrase all the time. Like I used it. Um, Sophie, I used it uh, when we talked about Lorraine Heath's waking up with the Duke. And how mm -hmm. she just, like, she takes the finger in that book. Like, it's a cheating book. It's, like, it's all about, um, you know, it, like, the whole premise of the book is this, you know, the heroine's husband is dying, is, it like, cannot, cannot have a child. And for the hero and heroine to be together, he has to die and they have to cheat on him. Right. Um, so I. Which is a lot of no, no. It checks a lot of no, no boxes. Checks a, a lot, lot of, of boxes. Yeah. So, but she, but the only way for that book to work is for somebody to really lean into it. Like you have to, she takes the finger, right? So why don't mm -hmm. you start by explaining to everybody how we came to this? Because we also, I think, need to clarify that this is in no way an insult to the original author. <laughs> oh, yeah, no. Oh, in fact, no. it's like pure love for her so well well I yeah I want you to define it and then I want to talk a little bit more about what I like how how it comes across like what I think is risky about it too is that like the reader like your relationship with the reader right Sophie and I spend a lot of time emailing each other about bananas books like Books, books that like we think really operate on this kind of wild on the wild scheme. Um, and we're really interested in books that do that, just like Jen is. Uh, but for before we had a podcast, Jen and I, Sophie and I would just text about these wild books like she was my podcast. <laughs> and so, yeah, and I mean, that's how Bananas Books came up between us. Bananas. Yeah. Those of you who have uh, been at events with Sophie and I know that we often do a panel called ba Bananas Books where we just talk about these like wild books from the past um, that we love a whole lot. And so we're always really full of joy when we find a new author who really is kind of operating on all cylinder, firing on all cylinders for this particular, in this particular way. So um, people like Cressley, right, who just kind of balls to the wall, right, you know, these wild premises like Mr. Vivisection, becomes a hero because, of course, he does, right? So a while back, several years ago, uh, Sophie and I read Annika Martin's uh, Dark Mafia. It's Dark Mafia Prince, right? That's the first book? Right. Okay. So, yeah. The Dark no. Mafia Prince series, which is about three brothers who, um, you know, are orphaned when their father, who's in the mob, who's a Russian mobster, is killed by a another Russian mobster who he thought was his friend. And that sort of the, the killer Russian mobster then became like king Russian mobster and he had a daughter and the brothers came back for vengeance and like vengeance stories are absolutely my jam. And uh, so Sophie and I read these books and we read them in like 
a minute and a half. Like we could I, not. I did the same thing, not with you, it but I had the same experience. Bonkers. And so it's like the two, there's like the, the oldest, who's like the hero of the first book, the middle, who's absolutely insane, like a madman, um, and, you know, makes real bad choices. <laughs> and then the third brother, who's literally feral. Like, like raised, yeah, like raised, raised in in the wilderness (laughs) by animals, right? So, I mean, it's crazy. (laughs) And so, um, so Sophie and I started texting back and forth. And there's a scene in the first book where the second, where the middle brother, who is like really just crackers, Mm -hmm. um, has. Uh, like threatens to cut off the finger of the heroine of book one mm-hmm. of her of book one and the hero's locked in the trunk of a car and <laughs> the guy this the brother who will ultimately be the hero of book two you sort of know it's all teed up right he's like somebody go to staples and get me a paper cutter <laughs> and then he sits down <laughs> with her and he's like here you're gonna want to drink a lot of vodka because this is gonna hurt and then he like puts her finger in the paper cutter and lo and behold the hero like breaks out of the trunk and like comes and saves her and it's all great. And Sophie and I spent like more time than we really should have talking about the fact that like what we really wanted was for like this second hero to just take the fucking finger, right? We wanted her finger to get cut yeah. off. I mean, my adrenaline was so high in that moment. Totally and it's right. so awful that as a reader, you're like, yeah, and take and the finger. The worst part about this as I mean, and I mean, worst slash best is that as a reader, you know this is the next hero. Like, you know it. And you're like, right. I don't care. Let him paper cut her to death. Right? <laughs> and so and so here's my official apology to Annika, because I feel this is Annika Martin's books. You guys, we love these books. These are these are great. Really, this Definitely. is a really fun books, quarantine read. Um, and I, I just fear sometimes that Annika thinks that when we say "take the finger," we are we are somehow saying that Annika didn't do it and it wasn't good. I think what we're actually saying is like, no, Annika set it up so that we were so invested in this in this second hero, even if he was a total sociopath. Right. Right. Which is what he was. Um, And so so Annika, we love you. I know you came to me on Twitter and you said, no, Sarah, he should not have taken the finger. (laughs) (laughs) And um, and I just want you to know, like, we think you're great. And, um, you know, everyone out there, like we think Annika is great. And we still think that he totally could have paper cutted that finger and you could have made it work. Because you're very talented. Um, so, but the point is, is that now it's kind of taken on a life of its own. Well, and I, I want to say, like, the the more we use this phrase on the podcast, I think the, it certainly has that element of, you know, like, if, of leaning into whatever premise it is that you have decided to put on the page. And that doesn't necessarily mean it has to be completely bananas with, you know, paper cutters involved, but that we we're encouraging authors to like write fearlessly. So right. this is really about authors. It's it's not really about readers, but I th- but my sense is as the reader of the three of us. I mean, you're all both readers too, but you know, peer reader is that um one of the impediments like is is it's genre fiction, right? Like and genre fiction comes with a certain set of promises. And in romance, we know about the HEA, but I think we also there's a lot of other things that like we've unpacked a lot. And then there's a lot of landmines, things that are just really hard to like make happen in a book. And so when we see and and so sometimes it's like if you're going to approach the landmine, you know, you have to be willing to like sort of set it off maybe if that and and I think there's a lot of ways in which this plays out at what I think of as being like the corners of romance, right? Like pushing out against the boundaries of whatever it is that we think reader expectations are, because that's the people that would frown upon you taking the finger, right? So it there's some sort of interaction between those two that that also I think kind of pl- probably plays into that like internal voice being like, can I really do this thing? 
Yeah. I mean, I think Sophie and I have spent a lot of time, you know, we have this ongoing thing between us where, you know, if, if one of us has an idea and we think to ourselves, like, I don't know if I can pull that off, you know, which often is, it's one of two things. It's either like, I personally don't know that I'm a good enough writer to pull it off is always part of that. But then there's the second sort of voice that what, what, I sort of think of as like the Twitter voice, right? Where it's yeah. like, mm-hmm. if I write it, how much hate is it going to get, <laughs> right? And I think, and often Sophie and I have this moment where we're like, I don't think I can pull this off, right? And and be able to and be able to really do it right. And we're always saying to each other, like, well, then that's why you have to write this one, right? Like you right. have There's to certain- constantly be pushing yourself toward Mr. Vivisection, right? Like, that's the goal. Right. If you feel like you're doing something risky, you're probably on the right track. But it's just, it it is a internal But it's struggle. risky. I didn't know when I wrote Duke Buys, The Duke Buys a Ride, I felt like just the title alone, it made me uncomfortable. And sometimes I think mm-hmm. when you're writing in this space of taking the finger, you should feel, you're feeling uncomfortable. You're feeling a little uncomfortable. That's the only way that you can do it right, though. Right. Exactly. What I'm feeling, those nerves are translating, you know, that anxiety. I'm feeling anxiety writing it. Then I know my reader is going to feel the same anxiety in the best way, right? The anxiety, the fear for your characters. Right. And also, though, but as a writer, when you're feeling that anxiety, it means you're being more careful. Like you're thinking about. Mm, yeah. And one of the things for Jen sure. and I talk about all the time on this podcast is like in order for you to fully understand these tropes that edge into the taboo. Right. Mm-hmm. Like you have to be able to understand why they are taboo and why they really like fundamentally when you strip them down, why they work or don't. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's exactly right. And so maybe this would be a great time to have Sophie talk about um, the Virgin and the Rogue, because I feel like there's a lot of um, like control rods that you put into this book to keep it from like running away, like, right. Like sort of getting out of control. Well, the aphrodisiac trope, it was so funny because I posted something about this not long ago. And I'm like, does it qualify as a trope when it's really not done that often? And someone was like, absolutely. I love that trope. And I'm like, okay, because there's only a handful of aphrodisiac books I can think of um, from old school to now. You know, I think of the original, I think of Johanna Lindsay's Secret Fire. And I read that book so many times. And of course, in true old school Johanna Lindsay, there's a lot, there's, it's problematic in a lot of ways, but wonderful at the same time. So I just, for years I'd had it just like Sarah had mentioned, like I had had it in my head. I didn't know anything about the story or the plot line, except that I wanted to write an aphrodisiac book. Um, and I think part of when you're talking about control rods is I think that the thought of someone drugging someone else, that just is, it it makes people extreme. It's illegal for a reason. It's like, you know, a girl today getting roofied in a bar. That's horrible. That's horrific. So I think the important thing is for the fantasy to be a positive fantasy is that, you know, the hero or the heroine in this, in whatever case, if it, whoever's, you know, dosing the other person with aphrodisiac, um, it doesn't come from them. It's an accident, almost. Somebody else has done it to them, you know? Right. I think that, that for me, was part of the control. And in, in The Virgin of the Rogue, my heroine gets dosed by her sister, who thinks she's giving her a tonic for PMS, cramps. So, yeah. I mean, and, and I think that added a little levity, too, you know? And realism, because, I mean, yeah. surely. And Why 18, else would she know, be mixing up tonics? Right, exactly. But what's so amazing about it is the way that you tackle and I don't want to ruin it for readers, um, but there is a obviously there is a as you pointed out, there's a consent issue here. Right. Like if she's Mm -hmm. under the influence of an aphrodisiac, how could how could consent sort of exist? 
right? And you do it so masterfully. And I mean, Jen, finally, when Jen read it, I was like, you have to tell me when you get to the end of that scene. Yeah. Uh, Because it's such a delight. It's such a delight. And it's such a thoughtful way of I mean, I had to think about that. And also super hot, super hot. Right. Did I want consummation to happen while they were under the influence of an aphrodisiac? How far did I want it to go while under the influence? I mean, in the original Secret Fire by Johanna Lindsay, consummation happens Mm. under the influence of the aphrodisiac. And it happens many times because she cannot be satisfied. I mean, he go, they, they have round one and she's still in torment and in agony. And the servant tells the hero, <laughs> oh well, sometimes we have to bring in forces to help women when they're under this aphrodisiac. <laughs> like, it's you. I've seen women oh, take shit. horses. No kidding. I've never forgotten that line. And the hero is like, and the hero, like, I can see the hero in my mind, like, kind of raising his fist in the air. By God, she will require no horses. <laughs> see the look on my face right now. Well, you know, I think part of this, too, I think what's really hard is, um, you know, we have we've talked about Robin Lovett's Planet of Desire series yes, where I'm, like right mm-hmm. the and and I think that there's a a way in which setting it down in historical or setting it down in a paranormal or sci-fi kind of world, right? right. Like I don't I mean, it's really interesting. The one in a contemporary, I think it's really hard. And um, the one where I've recently read, like, sort of a, a like a delightful, um, really kind of amazing aphrodisiac plot. And it doesn't really play out this way at all, like, in the same way as in um, Tasha Harrison has a book called A Taste of Her Own Medicine. And her mo- her grandmother, um, and it's really cool, actually, um, is, like, essentially like a medicine woman. And I forget, like, the actual term. And her... Um, Sonia's our heroine and she's going, she's just been recently divorced. She's 40 and her grandmother is kind of like, I'm going to give you this like come to me potion. And she's like, no, you can't do that. But I think the thing about that book is there's so many ways in which, um, it sort of leans in to, and I mean, you're, we're talking about like premise here, but I think the other thing that's really hard to do, and I know this is going to sound bonkers but i think it's really hard to create emotionally vulnerable heroines because i think we're really invested in seeing heroines as being strong and in this book mm-hmm. sonia the the hero is 30 so this is you know she's 10 years older than him and they're out at a bar and he like basically tells her how beautiful she is and she starts crying And I was like, holy shit, like to allow this woman to be really vulnerable, to like have gone through a terrible divorce and and have a man like compliment her and have her really like be so emotionally overwhelmed by it felt risky to me. Right. Because you're Mm -hmm. really showing a heroine is being like truly emotionally vulnerable when I think we often I often come into the romance space wanting women to to be strong. And I, I think it like there's a book that it's a different kind of taking the finger than like, you know, obviously. But yeah, I think a lot about how much I value those moments where we see people really, truly being vulnerable and feeling like she flees, essentially, like she's just like, oh, my right. God, I'm so horrified. I'm out of here. And I have never felt so like truly like, wow, that's a risk, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's the difference between, I mean, it, it's authenticity and fantasy are often, I, they have to exist simultaneously in romance novels. Um, and in the best ones, they do, but they are both incredibly difficult to nail. Yeah, yeah. Right. And, and I, I bet just, there are people, I was just say, I think it's hard when you feel that, like, it's back to discomfort. And in this mm-hmm. case, it's me as a reader. I'm like, oh, my God, like, she's, I just... Oh, right. It's hard to see our characters that we love and want to fall in love with as they fall in love feeling, mm-hmm. feeling like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, there's a reason, you know, I don't write 
even in historicals, too many virgins necessarily anymore, just because I've written that book a lot. I'm, I'm an older woman now and I have been writing for a long time. So I don't necessarily, the virgin heroine isn't my go-to anymore, but Mm -hmm. for this book, it was the only way because, because of that thing you're talking about, I couldn't very well title the book, the mouse and the, and the mouse and the, uh, the rogue, but that's what it is. I mean, the woman who's going to take the aphrodisiac and totally come out of her shell and really kind of have growth throughout the whole book, become a new person because she's been awakened, has to be a woman that's not already there, you know, that already right. isn't, you know, out and necessarily secure and confident. So um, that's well, why, and the, you know, I had to go with a virgin. Yeah. And yeah. in the reverse, right? Mm-hmm. The aphrodisiac mm-hmm. also shows the hero a part of himself that he did not think existed, right? Like the fact that in the moment he's like, oh shit, like I can't just like, I can't just take, take her because that would be wrong. He has, right. Right. It's so suddenly he has the restraint he doesn't usually have. Right. And he's not a scoundrel. Like suddenly he's like, who am I if I am not a scoundrel? I thought I was a scoundrel, right? I Mm -hmm. was the rogue. Mm -hmm. And yet here I am doing the right thing. Something's not right here. And I mean, I love that. I mean, that's reformed. Yeah, too. Reformed rake is, you know, it's a trope for a reason, and it's yeah. delicious. Mm-hmm. But I think that's the thing about like taking the finger, right? Like the aphrodisiac or the paper cutter or the whatever. Like all of it's just about about who these characters are at like a moment of crisis. Yeah. And I think for that's for it. me right now, as we're all facing like really something unprecedented and like sort of like really facing like kind of who we are and what we're made of and what our families are made of. I think like there's a reason why books with like big high stakes like this appeal to me so much right now, because I need to know that I can get through it. Right. And so books where people face face their greatest fears or face like these challenges are important to me. Yeah, it's really interesting because I'm seeing so many people going back to the classics, the like old school yeah. classics right now and rereading. Um, and I mean, obviously, I'm always interested when people decide to, that they're going to reread like the old the old books. Um, but for me, the last couple of weeks have really been about the books that have given me the most joy have been the books that are kind of wild, like yeah, we absolutely. reread nobody's baby but mine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just, we read, just reread uh, a book by Jill Sorensen, and it takes place during an earthquake. And I'm like, well, that's oh. my jam right now. I want to read a romance where the odds and, like you said, the stakes are so impossible. Like they are yeah. not only are they trapped in an area, so it's got forced proximity by an earthquake. They're they're it's like. They're stuck on a section of highway that is collapsed, so they're in this like giant bubble with a certain number of people, <laughs> including wow. including a busload of convicts. Like, I mean, it's already bad enough. You're trapped in rubble during an earthquake. We're gonna throw some, you know, a prison bus in there too. Uh, you know, Jill like is desperate. Yeah. desperate situations. And I want to know. Okay, yes, yeah, so a romance is yeah. gonna come out of this, and they're gonna be just fine. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I think that's the part, right? Like I will now be able to read because the promise of the HEA at the end means that no matter how how high my discomfort is, there's like safety in rereading. Right. Or keeping I I can keep going. Right. Because I know it's going to work out at the end, even if I don't know how. And so like these moments of either like you know, off the charts vulnerability or, you know, off the charts, like just like, wow, the premise, there's so much going on in here. I, I have faith that the author is going to like sort of make it work at the end. And that's, I think, why like taking the finger, it's, I think as an, as a reader, when I see and, you know, our sort of the opposite of taking the finger is like pulling the punch is when I see people pulling the punch, I think, well, why? Like what, and that's where it, I do feel like it's like that skill as an author. Were you afraid that your readers wouldn't follow you there? Were, right. Mm-hmm. Were you afraid that, I mean, there's like lots of ways in which that gets, that gets played out. Right. And I, I, think, I think, I think all yeah. that is real. I mean, yeah, look, it's especially now for authors being 
public, like part of the job, right, is being public, which means we're constantly putting ourselves out there to get the the feedback that maybe we don't always want. I mean, yeah. I think I can actually f- fully say we don't always want it, right? True. But, you know, yes. we talk all the time about the reason why, I mean, Sophie and I have had this conversation a thousand times, but the reason why Julie Garwood and Joanna Lindsay and Jude Devereaux and Judith McNaught were all kind of each one was like constantly raising the bar on this wildness in the books is because they were only receiving feedback from each other. Right. So it was Joanna Lindsay wrote a Viking book. Uh, You know, some other person wrote a Viking book. Judith McNaught wrote a medieval. uh, You know, Julie Garwood wrote a medieval that was, you know, wilder. And like it just sort of they would read each other's books and then iterate them. And so, but now what we're all doing is we're, we're getting constant feedback from readers, right? Yeah. Who are saying right. like, this didn't work for me because I, I was concerned about this theme or this, you know, this character didn't work for me for whatever reason, or like I'm divorced. And so I don't like to read books about divorce characters. Right. And so you end up kind of constantly getting this like barrage of feedback that is not new. I mean, every book has people who love it and don't love it. Even those old ones, especially mm-hmm. those old ones. And, but instead of Judith McNaught, ha- Judith McNaught never had to hear it. Right. Right. Um, Unless people wrote letters. Right. Yeah. Yeah, But you would write letters to the publisher. And I don't think the publisher passed along the bad ones. I mean, they were writing. So they were writing into the void and following their id. Like this is what they wanted to write. Yeah. Yeah. And so for us now, we're all struggling with like pulling the punch because we're afraid, you know, so and so will say such and such thing. Um, And that's challenging. And of course, you have to hope that you have a community of people around you who are going to say to you, like, stop worrying, just write the book. But I mean, it's harder and harder to shut out the noise, which maybe maybe quarantine will help. Yeah. Well, I also think that I think that readers, um, you know, like there, I think I have great respect for one of the reasons I like really have been impressed by this, like Tasha Harrison book, though, too, is anytime someone can make me love a trope that I'm kind of like indifferent about, like, I don't mm-hmm. I don't really dislike like sort of age gap where the woman is older necessarily. It's not. But it's just like never worked for me. That's Sophie's so does, jam, by the way. Right. Oh, it, interesting. It well, is. you should read this. It's great. I mean, so it's really interesting. I've already to written sort of it then, down. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's fantastic. But I, you're like, seriously, you're going to love it. But it's one of those things where you're like, oh, here's a not. I mean, it's making me love secret baby. You know, that can happen, right? Like the opposite of hate Mm -hmm. is love. And so, of course, it's going to work for me at some point. But making me really care about something that I've been like, meh, it's just not really for me. I think Mm -hmm. that's the other thing is, you know, when when writers are writing like their truth, whatever that is, I even if it's not my truth, I see that in their writing. I don't know how. I don't know like You're what feeling. that magic yeah, is. You feel it. Yeah, exactly. right. But it's. But I feel like there's something so. I don't know. Like I feel like when I read books by people who are just really like this is the truth in this book, then I recognize that truth, even if it's not my truth, right? And that's the joy of of finding a great book. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. That's true. Yeah, I mean, I do think that, Jen, you are a, you know, you you always say like, oh, I'm a reader, you know, but you also are a critic, right? So you come at the books looking for what the the writer is trying to do. Yeah. And you and I have talked about this mm-hmm. before where we talk about, um, you know, what a writer is trying to do and whether, you know, whether or not they actually get there is almost less important than like the actual attempt yeah well this is like a good I maybe I've said this too but like so I um Michael Phillips who's the Chicago Tribune movie critic was a um I taught his son many years ago and he anytime someone interesting I could like get in front of kids and he actually came to talk to the students about movie reviewing and he was great and he was sometimes people are great with kids and sometimes they're not and he was great and he said and this has like really been a guiding principle for me as a critic is he's like I I always ask myself three questions right so it's like what what is the work trying to achieve 
does it achieve it? And was it worth achieving? And I think that that's been really important for me as I like think through, right? Because sometimes people take the finger and I think you shouldn't have, right? <laughs> yes. Like, yeah. Right. Yes. It's not, not every big risk or over the top bullshit thing you can think of is worth achieving. No, like slave master romances, Nazi, Nazi romances, romances. Yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, these are things did that. Yeah. Yeah. I do think, and I, <sighs> sorry, go ahead. No, and I, I was just going to say, and I think that that's why it's like all three of those questions together are the ones that like really help me think about. Because, of course, I mean, sometimes I feel like, you know, people are like, oh, you're going to hate it. It's, you know, something you don't like because I'm very clear about the things I personally like and don't like. And I was like, there are plenty of books I personally am like, yeah, it's not really my thing, but I see what it was trying to do and it did it and it was worth doing and it did it well. Yeah. Right. Like it, it's not really about me. And I think that that's like the problem when we talk about. F so, you know, there are plenty of books that I think really are like I'm trying to do something and I did it. Right. And that's a that's, great that's a great checklist to use. Every author should have that. Like, yeah, that's really, it's really it, it, right away in my men mentally right away. I'm holding it up against certain books of mine and I'm like, OK, yeah, that works. That works. That works. But yeah, yeah like you can't just the for thing. the sake of shock, write something. You can't just do it for the sake of here's bonkers, here's bananas. Boy, did I take the finger. But was it, what, why? Worse. Why? What's the why? Well, and here's yeah, the yeah. other thing. I think fundamentally taking the finger, the, the question mark that we all have to ask as writers when we're like facing that, when we're at that moment in the manuscript is will it harm? Yes. Will it do more yeah. harm than good? Right. And Absolutely. there is that is where I almost never I mean, I, there's really literally nothing that I won't you know, I'm not willing to try um, as a reader, except for these books where it just looks like a writer sat down and said, like, well, what's the most harmful relationship I can come up right. with? I'm going to write a romance in that yeah, world. Right. Yeah. And like, look, I mean where the redemption is just absolutely impossible, but it's just yeah. so shocking. That's what I'm going to And do. it's the difference between, right. for those of you who were with us last season for Immortals After Dark, it's the difference between, and I'm sorry that I keep bringing him up, but it's he's important, right? Declan yeah. Chase, mm -hmm. Mr. Vivisection himself, mm -hmm. who spends like four or five books prior to his own book where he is hero, mm -hmm. um, you know, Doing harm to immortals is becomes a hero. And the only reason why that is allowed is because fundamentally the harm that he does to immortals does not harm readers. Right. And that right. is the only reason why, you know, don't ever come at me with, well, but my Nazi, you know, my SS guard, you know, he's like Declan Chase. No, he's not. No, he. that's real right. harm. There real are no yeah. real vampires yeah in the world who are being harmed. So which is well, why maybe we talked about it, taking the finger in sci-fi and historicals, well, to a degree, right? Sometimes it's just easier in paranormals, you know? Sure. I right. mean, I because do think it's much more challenging in contemporaries than it is in anywhere absolutely. else. And that's why I think there's a, another kind of taking the finger, which I think is about carefully subverting reader expectations. And one of the people I think, uh, a book I really think that did that well um, was The Prince of Broadway by Jan mm. Joanna Shoup. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spoil the ending. So if you don't want to do that, because it's really about the ending. Skip which ahead is, two minutes. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Skip ahead. Through the entire book, Florence is like, I don't want to get married. I don't really want to be a mother. And the epilogue of this book is that she and Clayton are not married. They're just living, living together in 1909 or whatever the fuck year it is. Right. I have no idea. I just made mm -hmm. that up. And um, 1890s, whatever. And, you know, she's talks openly about like, I don't think I want to have kids and I want to use birth control. How do you feel about that? Kind of like I'm telling you, but this is not really a discussion. And I will tell you, I it it took my breath away. Because I yeah. thought I am so and, you know, we've talked a lot about like the baby log and this is what readers want. Right. Yeah. But here here is an example of, you no, know, but this character wouldn't want that. 
No. And and she didn't have to put it on page. That book could have just ended. No. And that is a real risk. Right. Like that is a fearless choice on the part of Joanna. Like Mm -hmm. because, you know, the reality is, is most readers want that. Um, What I will add to that is I'm not sure I've ever seen that in a historical. I would agree with that. I would definitely agree with it. I mean, I don't know how many baby epilogues I've written. Yeah. And and that's it. And I thought she didn't have not only did she not have to do this, right? The book could have just ended. But to say to put it on page like, no, H.E.A. for Florence is going to be that she and Clay just like live above her casino and she, she doesn't want kids and that's fine. It it meant something to me. I mean, I really remember reading it and being like, I didn't know I needed something like this until it until I had it because I didn't even think such a thing could exist. Exactly. And how how um, worthwhile is that to have that out there? Because here's countless number of romance readers and they're reading a story where it about a woman that's okay not having children, you know? Yeah, okay not getting married. I mean, that's important. That's a valuable thing. Like I've had to, you know, I've had to kind of like raising a daughter. I'm like, you may not want kids someday. That's okay. Like, I don't ever want to put that expectation on her. Even, I mean, you know, she very likely will, but who knows if she doesn't, that is okay. A woman doesn't have to have that to be complete. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think like a similar, um, like kind of pairing is I really like, um, it's the red and the rose by Tiffany Rice. And in the first one, um, the like essentially the heroine of the first one is like the mother of the girl in the second one. And it becomes really clear in the second one that like the couple from the first one have continued to have an open relationship through their entire marriage. And you're like, well, of course they did, right? Like, this isn't a couple that's going to, like, settle down into, like, monogamy or even, like, a sort of, like, closed polyamorous relationship. Like, it is a straight-up open relationship. And I think that that also, I mean, you know, of course, I don't think anyone's reading Tiffany Rice, who's not, like, right? She's always pushing boundaries. But these are, like, the small ways in which I think you just see authors, like, making room. Yep. Right. Making room in the genre for for a broader, bigger swath of stories. Yeah. I mean, thinking about this, it's like when we did our bodily autonomy episode and we talked about all those books that like tackle abortion and tackle birth control, you know, real, Mm -hmm. real issues facing real women outside of the fantasy of the book. And that anytime anybody does that, I have such deep respect for it. And, And I think it's so important. Um, you know, one of the other things that I want to talk about while we're doing this has now gone out of my head. (laughs) (laughs) I I had a thing and now it's gone. Well, I feel bad because I feel like we like I feel like this episode ended up being kind of like thoughtful and serious and I didn't necessarily (laughs) mean it to be that way. I thought it was going to be like really fun. So maybe Make it fun again. Sorry, everybody. I came back to me. Um, But one of the things also that I want to talk about is this idea of the promise of the premise, which is also tied up in this conversation around being fearless. And this is such a tropey. When we talk about the tropes of the genre, when we talk about like bully romances or aphrodisiac romances or like, I don't know, like daddy romances like all and and often when we're talking about this is true of like all the tropes but especially the tropes that are a little bit wilder the reason why readers come to them is because they have an expectation for what that book should be right like celebrity romance shouldn't like People come to I love a celebrity romance and people come to celebrity romances for the kind of reveal of normal person plus celebrity is a challenge. Right. Right. Because there's paparazzi and there's, you know, the opinions of the public and there's, you know, the queen. (laughs) If you wait for those reveals, just like, you know, the heroine in disguise or the hero in disguise or you waiting for the great. Yeah, there is that scratch my id. Exactly. And there's this really interesting balance in these books where, um, you know, 
it's Sophie who says all the time, it's exactly the same, but completely different is the challenge in every romance novel, right? Like I'm going to write an aphrodisiac book. Obviously the money shot in the aphrodisiac book is the moment where they take the aphrodisiac and they cannot get enough. Right. Yeah. But how are you going to write that so that you are scratching the itch of people who love aphrodisiac books, which is the whole reason why you're writing it. Right. Because it, it's your jam too, but also writing it in, in a different way that sets yours on the pay, on the on the table as a revolutionary version of this, or maybe not revolutionary. Maybe that's not fair because not every book can be revolutionary. But like yours is being set down on the table as one that will stand out by virtue of being exactly the same and promising the premise, but also completely different and doing it in an interesting new way. These were all like considerations you have to take. And I'll go ahead and do a, I mean, the book following this, the Aphrodite is called the Duke effect. It's coming out in the fall and yeah, we will meet the aphrodisiac again. Um, and the hero is going to have a taste of it. So Hmm. that I remember when I told Sarah about that, we were like, Oh, that's going to be tricky when it's in his, you know, he's the subject of the aphrodisiac. So, um, again, Lots of uh, little checklists I had to start thinking about, you know, consent, different things as well. You know, no one, no one wants yeah. a totally lustful, out of control hero or do they? Yeah. <laughs> or well, do they? <laughs> I also think that this is why, um, like, really clearly, like, I don't think this is any time to be coy with readers about what it is that they're going to experience. Right. I mean, nobody wants to be surprised. You know, anybody who is like, you know, I really am just never going to enjoy a book where people are under like under the influence. Right. Of whatever, you know, they they shouldn't. And that's the thing, I think that, um, you know, like just know the. Like, I I don't know, like no one should like fall into that accidentally. Right. Like there and there are certain books that I would never like, you know, like I think of, um, you know, like Christine Fian is someone who's like, she's doing a lot. (laughs) Like, Right. There is a woman who's like, really, it's a lot. And I (laughs) shift your sex as Panther. Yeah, sure. Great. (laughs) But that's also where it's like if you're recommending books to people, just like realizing that, you know, when you're recommending a book where people are like really leaning into something that might be, you know, back to that, like, do no harm. You know, it's Mm -hmm. like that's Mm -hmm. true as as readers when we recommend books to each other, too. Right. Mm -hmm. Like there's a reason why every single time we bring up an old school Joanna Lindsay, we're like, okay, by the way, be careful. (laughs) Yeah. And the thing that's really hard is when you read as much as like the three of us read, it's I don't remember everything, right? I don't remember everything. And the things I might remember are like, okay, yeah, this might work for you. But I think that that's the part where you're like, oh, oh. I mean, it's it's definitely a danger if you're recommending an old school that you yourself remember from 15 years ago. And you're like, I haven't read it since, but I've done that. And then I went back and reread it at the same time I recommended it to someone else. And I'm like, oh my and gosh. Like, oh, there's horse cock in it. Whoops. I did. I definitely <laughs> should have warned you. <laughs> Sometimes we have to bring in the horses. <laughs> Sometimes I mean I did not only remember solution. that from that book. I, ex- I uh, remember that. I never forgot that line. <laughs> and I mean, you. I do think at some point we need to have a conversation. And I don't know. I mean, I don't know how. I I like to think I I have have cracked the nut on a lot of the history of romance and why things happened. Yeah, mm-hmm. but like the absolute disregard for like. Just the sheer wildness of those early books. Mm-hmm. I just, I don't, how was it possible that they were all writing these wacky books at the same time? Like, and no one was saying like, maybe that's too much. <laughs> I mean, but I just sent, I sent um, Sophie this, this, uh, you, I tweeted this YouTube oh trailer of this movie from 1963 called Lady in a Cage. Um, that is true. So I can't focus on anything right now because I don't know the world. Um, and so last night, Eric and I were sitting on the couch and all we did for two hours was just we were down the rabbit hole watching previews of old, like weird movies that we'd never heard of yeah. before. <laughs> and there's this movie called Lady in a Cage starring Olivia de Havilland. 
And it the preview begins with Olivia de Havilland wearing like a proper dress and pearls saying, My new picture, Lady in a Cage, it's a strong picture with a terrifying theme which affects us all. That's why I urge adult responsible people to see Lady in a Cage. You will be shocked. You will be terrified and fascinated. So I caution you, do not see it alone. And it's really, really, like, weird. And then the preview itself is bonkers. And and it's just, I mean, it would never, ever get made today. And never in a million years. But probably shouldn't have been made in 1963 either. I know. And with all people, like Olivia de Havilland... You know, you think of as yeah. elegance. It's just, it it's, was strange. It's really bizarre. And so um, we'll link to it, but it's it's weird. And also you have, but you do have this moment where you're like, what was going on? Why are the, why were the movies like this? Why were the books like this? What is it that was happening? Is it just that like 50 years ago, romance was nascent. And so it was just like the Neanderthal version. I, I don't know. I think romance as a genre feels such great responsibility towards not harming people. Yeah. And it's one of the things I appreciate the most. But I also think that it's then one of the um, one of the reasons it's I don't know. It's just complicated. Right. Because. I just stop reading. Right. I, I think I but I feel like I'm lucky enough to just be able to, like, let that kind of slide off of me. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's like this really interesting question about, like, you know, are is this because. I don't even know if I want to say this on the podcast, but I, I guess I would say. Is it because women are so used to being so many readers and writers are women or and marginalized people and they're always put in caretaking roles that the the idea that we have to like care for our readers this way is like an extra burden that other genres and other mediums don't feel. Yeah. I mean, look, I don't know if you're if you're going to want to keep that in the podcast, but the reality is, is, you know, it's a very legitimate way of thinking about it. You know, nobody asks James Patterson to do it. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I mean, I I don't think I just think maybe if it's phrased as a question, it's not I don't know. We'll we'll talk about it. But yeah, I don't it's this is like really so it's really tricky. Right. Because when like certainly there are things on Netflix that are way more over the top. Right. Than anything mm-hmm. I've ever seen in a romance. And yet the responsibility of romance seems to be greater. And I think that's just interesting. Yeah, maybe because it's about feelings. It's interesting, and yet we're all, and to find ourselves still so uh, criticized, you know, that's even more interesting, right? Yeah, well, you're right. We're doing such emotional work, and nobody cares. Yeah. 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 I don't know. I mean, I just think, I just, I think phrasing it as a question is interesting. Like, what, how is, it seems so different, how, and I just don't, I don't know the answer to that, but I think about it a lot, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it is heavy and careful and thoughtful work. And then I, you still run across people who just, you know, acquaintances who follow me on Facebook that aren't my reader, but they're like acquaintances because, you know, whatever, my kid knew their kid five years ago, um, are very dismissive of it and what I do. And I'm like, this is a, this is a thing out there that is, we put a lot of, like, we care about it and it's important more now than ever, I yes, think. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I think romance is doing a lot of work right now. A lot of heavy lifting. I think it's doing a lot of heavy lifting during the quarantine. Um, I think people are turning to us in a really different way. Um, and I hope that if you are turning to books that are a little bit bananas, um, that give you just, you're looking for something that gives you pure joy, that you will uh, download or order from your local independent bookstore, Sophie Jordan's The Virgin and the Rogue, which is out this week. And um, Sophie, tell us where are you doing signed book plates? What are you doing? Because I know I do. that you can't local, get to a store maybe. Yeah, but 
my local indie is still shipping. That's Katie Budget Books. And I have all the links on my website and they're still shipping and you can just order it or you can order it signed because, you know, we have a whole system in place for me to get curbside. (laughs) They're going to put the box in the back of my trunk and I'll bring them back a day later. So nice. Well, make sure you sign them outside in the open air. Yes, I'm still um, available to sign. Yeah, I was going to actually probably let them sit in my car for 24 hours before they're all working from home themselves. The, the booksellers at Katie budget books, but going, you know, one at a time they go into the store. So they, they, they're still operating and they said they're doing okay. So I'm happy, you know, I'm I'm pushing a lot of books and ordering myself through Katie budget books right now. Um, that's yeah. It comes out in April and I have a free short story up. I need to send I actually, oh yeah, we need to send it to Jen. Yeah, I mean, Do hello, I need Jen. I, it is <laughs> it's so delicious. Speaking of quarantine um, reads, right now, I wrote it like in a whirlwind of you know five days. It's thirty-five pages, and it's forced proximity, and it's basically a romance that takes place in the same world as the Virgin of the Road, but it's below stairs. It's between um, mm. a housemaid and the stable master, and it's called nice. in bed. In bed with the stable master. So, and, and there's. Uh, a, I'm sorry. I, we're just gonna have to put a moratorium on all horse talk for a while on faded dates. So uh, I'm gonna need Wait, you to reconsider oh, everything. Jennifer, I'm, I'm ruined. Jennifer Prokop, <laughs> did you or did you not do a Who Did It Better on a Horse post okay, one time? I would like to really defend myself because Who Did It Better on a Horse is a whole lot fucking different than Who Did It Better with a horse. Nobody did it with a horse. The hero made sure of it. <laughs> That's right. He was committed. He was dedicated. You know I'm gonna go to fucking read that. that so I literally I am gonna down. We're gonna buddy read this right now. Now, our new, a new text thread is going to open, and it's going to be who did it better with a horse? <laughs> no, no. Only another horse. That's who. <laughs> um, okay. Well, that got that. That took a turn. Um, listen, everyone. This is Faded Mates, and we love you, and we love Sophie Jordan. Sophie, where can people find you? In your house right now. You don't have anything else yeah, to do. Yeah, I'm up in my office right now. <laughs> but I'm on Facebook. Uh, Sophie Jordan on Facebook. Uh, I'm on Twitter, but not nearly as active. Instagram and Facebook are my play counts. Um, so we as we said, The Virgin and the Rogue is out now. You can pre-order. You can order it from Katie Budget Book Sign from, by Sophie or from your own local indie that's working. Shout out to indie bookstores that are uh, still running the show. and uh, Or you can order it in E and get it right this second to read. Right away. Um, please send us a voicemail. Leave us a voicemail message. We are, Jen and I are just, we're dead of how much we love the voicemail messages that are coming through during quarantine. Um, but if you're listening to us and you want to tell us about a book that you love um, or the book that blooded you, please do. The number is 646-450-3766. Um, we, are, we use Overcast as a podcasting service here in Shea McLean. Um, Overcast is made by Marco Arment, who is who puts it all up for free and is doing triple the work right now during quarantine. And we're so grateful to Marco because he's also got another uh, product that uh, is why show notes and images on your podcasting apps uh, look so gorgeous. What else, Jen? Um, I don't know, you guys. Just take care of yourselves. That's it. That's all I got. Yeah. Wash your hands. I think Kelly, yeah. Oh, Kelly's still shipping buttons, but you can also choose to, like, wait and hold if you want to, because I know that she's actually able to walk to a post office, but I know a lot of people have concerns about the mail. But I think, um, you know, it's complicated. Everybody's just trying to do their best. Uh, Fade of Mates is produced by Eric Mortensen. Be safe out there, you guys. We love you all. Stay away from aphrodisiacs. Well, I mean, wait, if you're quarantined with somebody who you love, yeah, get, try it out. Get on aphrodisiacs. <laughs> I mean, hello. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Hi, Faded Mates. My name is Bailey, and I live just outside Minneapolis, Minnesota. And I first started listening to the podcast because I'm a librarian, and I wanted to learn more about the romance genre so I could give good recs. That was like a year ago, 
And now, especially like during these crazy times that we're all living in, it's basically the only reason I keep track of the days so that I know when it's Wednesday and I can listen to the new episode. So I grew up reading romance. My mom was a huge romance reader. She had like hundreds, if not thousands of romance books in our house and in the garage attic. And like at night, I would sneak out of my room with my flashlight back to the boxes of books that she had. And I rummaged through them, trying to find the juiciest ones I could find. Then I would take these back to my room and I would read them by flashlight. And one of the books I found was Sweetland, Wildwind by Elizabeth Lowell. I know this because I remember making myself memorize the title and author so that one day when I was a grown-up, I could find this book again and read it. I don't remember, like, a whole lot about it. I know, like, the guy and girl, like, grew up on a ranch together, and, like, when she was in her teens, they kind of got together. But one night, he takes her back to his place so then they can finally do it. And right as when they're getting down to it, he walks away, leaving her naked and vulnerable and emotionally devastated. So flash forward to 10 years later, and she's back at the ranch for, like, inheritance reasons or something. doesn't matter because there's all this unresolved tension and lost love and misunderstandings that they need to resolve. And all I remember knowing is, like, how much he wronged her and needed to fix it. And one of the ways he does this is when they finally do get down and dirty again, he takes, he lets her take off all of his clothes, but she gets to keep hers on. And like that moment was so emotionally satisfying to me. I think like later in the book, he also like rescues her from a thunderstorm. There might be one of those, you have to get married to inherit the ranch type things. Anyways, I loved this book as a kid. It's definitely one that blooded me. Thank you both so much for bringing me back to my love of reading romance, and I can't wait to hear the next episode. Thanks.